Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features Amy Williams. We hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome back to the Sound Weavers podcast. My name is Rosanna Moore. I am your host as always, and my co-pilot today is the amazing and wonderful Dr. Adam Paul Cordell. Hello, Adam. How are you, my dear? Hi, Rosie. I'm doing well today. So today, we're really excited to have our second composer that we've interviewed for this series, the amazing and wonderful Amy Williams. Now, Amy comes from a very musical family, with both her father and mother being a percussionist and violinist in the Buffalo area. She studied at Bennington College and then went on to be a faculty member not long after graduating, has been a Fulbright scholar in various places around the world, is currently the associate professor at the University of Pittsburgh, previously was at Northwestern University, and honestly has written for just anyone that you could possibly think of, whether that be the Jack Quartet, the Wetting Ensemble, International Contemporary Ensemble, H2 Saxophone Quartet, the list goes on and on. Uh, she is also the Artistic Director for New Music on the Point, a brilliant and wonderful festival that runs during the summer. So hi Amy, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, it's wonderful to be here. So just to kick things off, can you talk about how and when you began composing? Because in researching you and reading your biography, I see that you play the piano and also played the flute for a while. I did, yes. I, I um, As you mentioned, my parents are both professional musicians. I will have to specify that my mother is a violist. <gasps> violist. I, I am heard. so sorry. I misread that. I went, oh, it's got a V in front of it. It must be violinist. <laughs> Violists unite, right? So um, I, yes, I, I grew up in this very musical family and I started playing the piano as a very young child. Uh, and then in the third grade, uh, I had to choose a second instrument for school, and my uh, sister was playing the cello, and after her lugging that cello onto the school bus, <laughs> I decided that maybe I would choose the flute instead, <laughs> because it was much more portable. Absolutely. <laughs> so I, I got my flute, and as it turned out, um, the incredible legend of uh, flute and extended techniques. Robert Dick was living in Buffalo for two years, working with, with my father in the Center for the Creative Associates. And so, uh, you know, he just, my father just asked him if he would give me lessons. And I didn't even know how to put the flute together or how to <laughs> play a note. And Robert mostly was teaching uh, very, very advanced players. Um, at the university. And so uh, I was really lucky that I, I uh, had that opportunity to work with him. And honestly, he was a phenomenal teacher, so inspiring. And I was playing everything, all of the 
uh, traditional repertoire, but also learning how to play multiphonics and whistle tones and, and tongue rams and everything on the flute. And it, and, and, you know, as a child, you don't know that this is strange. It's just, you know, your teacher says, try it and you do. And so, um, so I played the flute very, very enthusiastically for many years. Robert was only there for two years. And so then when I got to college, I was still playing the flute and piano, but I started composing in college, um, really sort of the first class, they said, write, write a composition. And I, I had no idea what I would do, but uh, I wrote a solo clarinet piece in 5-4, and I thought I was quite fancy for doing that. And uh, it, was, um, it was so difficult and such a different way of approaching music, having always played other people's music, um, that it was really fascinating to me. And um, I had some phenomenal teachers uh, in college at Bennington and uh, really inspiring uh, musicians, many of whom were pianists and composers as well. And so that really just felt like the right um, future for me to, to be able to combine playing especially playing contemporary music, which was always my love, and, um, and composing. And so with that, the flute sort of was relegated to the background. I played some in flute ensembles and things, but I just couldn't really maintain three tracks at the same time. Uh, and so I started composing and uh, it was um, really challenging, just, you know, it makes you think about music in such a different way than being a performer that, that working both of those sides of, of my brain was really interesting to me. And so, so I kept doing that. Yeah. Um, I wonder actually on that same topic, um, you do a lot of work with the um, Bugalo Williams duo. I'm not sure if I pronounced it right or not. Um, but uh, I I'm interested to know how your work as a performer in a piano duo has informed your composition and similarly actually how your composition might be informing your work as a duo player. They're absolutely integrated for many, many years now. Um, when I was in graduate school, Helena Bugalo came to Buffalo to work with the same pianist that I was working with, Ivar Mikashev, who very sadly died that, that fall that she arrived in Buffalo. Um, and so this was 1993, um, and she came from Argentina, uh, and we, you know, struck up a friendship first, which is always a good place to start, uh, with chamber music. We started a friendship and then we started playing together. Um, we played on my master's recital, chamber music recital, and then we played on her master's recital, and then some composers started to write pieces for us. And then uh, as we just connected on a personal and musical level, we um, embarked on some of these larger projects. Um, and the first one was a project with Conlon Nancaro's music. Our teacher, Ivar, had worked uh, with Nancaro. Nancaro wrote when he started writing for human beings again in the 80s, he wrote uh, a tango for Ivar for his international tango project. And Ivar had also arranged uh, Nancaro's very early sonatina, which is a solo piano piece, but monstrously difficult. And Ivar arranged it for piano forehands. And Nancaro was quite impressed with how he could, you know, people, he could, you could really hear the piece of music then because it wasn't so much struggling to get through the technical issues. 
And so, um, so we knew Nankara's music through Ivar and knew that he had also arranged one of Nankara's player piano studies for piano forehands, study number 15. And so we wondered as we were um, really looking for forehand repertoire, particularly, there were so many fantastic two piano pieces, but we were looking for forehand pieces, uh, wondered if Nankara's, his player piano studies might be there might be more of them that could be possible by one, by two people at one piano. Uh, and that really got us, you know, with our youthful energy going on this wild project of uh, transcribing Dan Caro's player piano music for piano for hands. One thing that we did, which is maybe throwing yourself into a project that you have no idea you're actually going to do, it's just, is something that intrigues you and inspires you and it's crazy and it's something nobody else has done. And that was really what started us as a duo. Um, we got our first international festival uh, by proposing that we play, I think, six of the Nankaro studies when we had only even arranged three of them at that time. <laughs> we hadn't even made the arrangements, let alone learned how to play them. Um, and we got a, a, a gig in Denmark at a, at a pretty major contemporary music festival. And then we had to do it. We had to rise to the occasion and figure it out and learn it, you know, uh, at a very um, quick pace and, and high level. And in fact, when we got there, the way they had programmed it was that there was a, a, um, a musicologist, uh, instrument builder, fascinating Nankaro um, expert, Jürgen Hocker. Um, they brought Jürgen to come with his player pianos. Uh, and he had all of the copies of all of the player piano rolls. And they set it up as a kind of competition. So Jürgen oh, wow. played <laughs> one of the player piano studies. And then we played the same one on and then Jorgen played one oh, and goodness. we played it. And, the, and this was our first real uh, major festival, uh, <laughs> professional festival. Um, and it was terrifying. Yeah. I mean, it was absolutely set up in a, in a very terrifying way. And I wish they had told us that ahead of time. They didn't. Uh, <laughs> that but would have been I, far too easy. <laughs> but I was happy that uh, the audience definitely responded more to the live playing, even if it wasn't 100% accurate. <laughs> but they responded very much to the, to the live presentation of this mechanical music. And so we felt like we had uh, really climbed Mount Everest that day, personally, as musicians. And, but we survived. And that uh, jump-started our, our work together. If we could survive that, then, then who knows where we could go. So we've been uh, playing together. I mean, obviously things, she lives in Basel, Switzerland, so things are a little bit on hold now, but, um, but we've been playing together now for over 25 years, and um, she's uh, been an extraordinary influence on me, uh, just um, in terms of my own musicianship, and also introducing me to all kinds of of music and repertoire and composers and and um, Elena is also a musicologist um, and so she brings that perspective into our duo work and me being a composer I've written multiple pieces for us the duo has brought me to festivals around the world where I've 
heard new kinds of music and met more, you know, it's just everything is so interrelated that um, I couldn't see how one could have happened without the other. Um, and I, I really miss playing concerts now yeah. and I can't wait to get back to that. Oh, oh, I can't wait for live performances again. It's, it's going to be amazing. It's, I think I might cry. <laughs> Right. I mean, it, it, going from this, oh, not another concert to now, oh, please, a concert. It's such a shift. You know, you, yep. you appreciate things in a very different way when, it, when it's taken away. So Moving on more into the composition realm of your work. Uh, when you were younger, you had the opportunity to meet and listen to the music of brilliant composers such as John Cage and Morton Feldman and Elliot Carter. Can you talk a bit about how these experiences have shaped your compositional interests throughout your career? And do you find that those interactions still resonate with you in the present? Buffalo was kind of a, a very important center for contemporary music. Um, oh, it's fantastic. It's, it's such a wonderful, yeah. <laughs> wonderful center up there. Right, but particularly in the 1970s, um, when I was growing up, uh, you know, there was just so much going on, so much new music, just different characters. And, and so I, I met so many of these composers and, and performers. And um, I think, you know, maybe the most formative way I, I saw a life there that was something that was um, possible, but also a really interesting life in all of these, these musicians seeing how, you know, they would travel the world and they would take on these projects and they would do crazy things on stage and take chances, uh, never play the safe way, right? They weren't playing the same Mozart uh, sonatas for, for 50 years. They were, they were trying new things all the time. They were constantly being challenged by um to write new in new ways or to play in new ways and seeing that these kinds of characters some of them were incredibly eccentric and dynamic and engaging and so seeing that uh really made me think about these are the kind of people i wanted to be around um this this was the kind of group that that i would really enjoy situating myself in for a life uh, I'm probably not nearly as eccentric as some of them were, and that's okay. <laughs> um, but I was drawn to the music, but also to the people. Uh, yeah, I think that that was it. I mean, all of these composers, of course, I know their music and study their music, and I'm sure that they influence me in, in various ways, not always specific musical ways, but more, you know, John Cage's outlook on life and his openness uh, to new experiences, knowing that a figure like that who was so um, genuinely curious and open was, was also uh, an important uh, model for me. So talking about your compositions and working with different people, can you share some of your strategies for writing for people you see every day and you know they're playing, you know them really well, um, as well as collaboration changes with new colleagues or through what, what I refer to as cold call commissions. So someone just sends you a message going, hi, can you write a piece for the bagpipes? Being a composer feels like something you do alone a lot. You're, you're sitting there trying to conceptualize and write, but it really is something that you can't do in isolation. Being very aware of music as a social art form 
uh, and one that requires collaboration and working with other people, I think is something that is, you know, it's challenging for some people who really, like a Nancaro, right? <laughs> Nancaro was perfectly content to work by himself. Yeah, he didn't want to work with people, just give him a play up. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're not all Nancaros. So, you know, we really need to reach out. And so um, I feel like a lot of what I do is, um, you know, corresponding, <laughs> trying to researching what other people are doing. So if I get um, someone contacts me out of blue, I, I, I look them up, I see what they're doing, I see what is uh, exciting about what they're doing. And, and then I um, always try to keep those lines of communication open. And, you know, it's, I, I'm lucky to be at a point where I, I, I can't write every piece that I'm asked to write, but I, but I don't want to close any doors. I think learning to say no and knowing that it's going to be okay if you say no is a very important life lesson, one that takes quite a while. I, that's one I'm certainly still learning. I don't know about you, Adam. Uh, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> that's a big one. That's a big one. The first few times you do it, you think, well, that's the end of my career. And then you realize that actually being selective and knowing your own limits and knowing what you can do well uh, and knowing that we all do have limits means that you... Uh, it actually helps a career in the end, but always being respectful in how we interact with um, other musicians, I think is something that's really key. You will more likely damage your career by being disrespectful to other musicians than you will by politely saying no. It's very important to to maintain, you know, a level of respect. And I do, you know, there are many composers who are, have a kind of domineering approach to working with performers. And uh, being a performer myself, I know that that's something that I absolutely do not want to be. I want to, I want to set up a situation in which performers want to make that commitment, want to do their best, and where they can do their best, you know, and some of that requires compromise and, you know, listening, really listening to the performers and listening, having conversations and being flexible and um, letting them contribute to the process uh, without, you know, always being the enforcer as the composer. Uh, and I think that I'm learning more how to do that, how to be uh, more compromising in rehearsals and flexible even with my notation and some of the music itself I'm finding ways for performers to be more um, involved with the the creation not just the interpretation of some of the musical ideas and that that fascinates me yeah. as well well I mean I think that that's awesome too because it it also encourages performers to want to be invested in that process which keeps them coming back to composers I, I you know I I know when working with domineering composers that it's that can be a big turnoff because it just feels oppressive, right? Versus the, the collaborative elements of, of being able to work with someone. But it also means the performers, are, if they have a good experience, they're far more likely to want to play the piece in the right. future, which is, I, I certainly really appreciate hearing this from a composer because I think we've all, all worked with a couple of people that perhaps were a bit sort of in their box of no you have to do it this way and sometimes whether it just doesn't work on the instrument or doesn't work with someone's hands or their physiology it's 
it's really important to actually hear such a wonderful and well-established composer saying that. So thank you very much. It is, when it works, it is really, truly my pleasure to, <laughs> to have that, to have that interaction and to, you know, to have performers bring something to your own music that you didn't even plan for or expect um, can be uh, just so exciting and, and, um, and to keep you growing. Uh, if you know exactly how it's supposed to sound, why work with performers, right? The reason we work with performers is so that they can bring something to your music. Um, they study it in a different way. Their hands are different. Their, their approach, their experiences are different. And that is the most exciting thing about sitting in an audience listening to a piece of yours. Well, on the same theme, um, it, it, I'd be interested to hear a little bit about what your process is for composing works um, that are commissioned. Um, and specifically, I mean, I wonder, do you go to the repertoire that's been written for similar instrumentations or do you try to tackle the project in kind of a, a, a newer and fresher way or um, I mean how do you think about commissions in general? I generally start by trying to get to know the commissionee right um, because uh, not all string quartets are the same and and uh, or sometimes it's a it's a combination that I've never even thought of listening to or don't know I'm not very familiar with but trying to um, be inspired very early on in the process by those particular performances. What it is that that group can do or is interested in doing, the way that they play, whatever it is they play, is really usually at the beginning of the um, process for me. So listening to, I'm right now finishing up a piece for Tony Arnold, soprano and, and the Jack Quartet. And I've worked with Jack quite a lot over the last few years. Um, but Tony, uh, I wrote her a short piece about two years ago, and this is a larger, larger piece. And so I, you know, I, I, I started the process really by thinking very deeply about her and her voice and what, um, what uh, every voice is so different and so unique. And that doesn't mean that somebody else can't sing the piece, but it means that there is something about her voice that is coming into the early stages of the process. So that's, that's maybe the first step. And then uh, there might be some listening, yes, listening to, to other pieces for that same instrumentation, or um, it might be, for me, often there's a, a, a source of inspiration that's outside of music even. So it, it really could be looking through books of painting or poetry or, um, and trying to, to conceptualize the piece. There's always sort of a, an overall uh, concept that, I'm, that, that keeps me focused on that piece. It's, it's rarely a purely musical idea. It's not a melody or a, or a harmonic series of chords. It's, it's often some kind of outside of music inspiration. And so then you work those different angles, uh, thinking about the performers, thinking about the instrumentation, thinking about whatever that inspiration or um, is from outside of the piece itself. And then you kind of work those three and 
start getting concrete ideas and take it from there. I usually do have kind of an overall plan uh, early on where I, where I structure the piece. I know certain uh, form building elements are, are fixed and planned from the beginning, but uh, I'm not a composer who has the entire piece mapped out in their head and then composing is just getting it written down. I'm not like that. I try to be a little bit more flexible in, in pencil kind of a composer where I, if, if an idea improves upon something you originally imagined, then go with it. Don't stick, stick with the original just because that was your first idea. So there's quite a lot of, of revising and reworking in that process for me. And often even after the premiere, there's a bit more tweaking that goes on. Yeah, awesome. So. Um, and I also wonder, I mean, actually, that was that piece that you're talking about, the Tony Arnold and Jack Quartet um, commission. Uh, how do you choose a text for a work like that? Text is very challenging for me. I think it's the reason that I have not written much for voice is because I feel uh, like text is very controlling. Whatever your text is, the piece is very much about that. And it, it's um, very difficult to choose a text uh, because of that. I mean, it, it sort of tells you what kind of piece you have to write. And so it doesn't allow that flexibility that I, that I like to have in the process um, to a certain extent. Yeah, I struggled a lot. I think that's why this piece has taken me quite a while to, to finally tackle. In this case, I chose um, the Kirchwitter's Ursonata, which is a early um, classic piece of sound poetry from I think the late 20s or early 30s. Speaking about my childhood, at the beginning, Eberhard Blum was a flutist, uh, a member of the Feldman soloist. Eberhard was a, a very dear friend of the family and seemed to be in Buffalo a lot. I mean, I know he was there for at least two years, but he was there frequently for concerts and festivals and things. And Eberhard as a, was a flutist, but also a phenomenal performer of vocal sound poetry. And, um, and so he uh, recorded the Schwitters Ursonata. Um, it's a fantastic recording of the piece. Uh, and he performed it in my living room. Wow. Um, so I, you know, in my flannel nightgown, got to hear oh awesome. amazing performer play this. And it, and it stuck with me all those years. So I have a personal connection to the Schwitters. Uh, I was at a, at a give, giving a concert in Germany now, I guess about three years ago. And um, the, the soprano I was working with said, I said, oh, I'd love to do something with the, the Ursonata. But, you know, I don't know if I can get the rights or anything. She said, oh, Schwitters is going into the public domain in 2019. So oh, wow. at that moment, Look at that timing. text became accessible. What I wanted to do with the text was not just do a version of it. I didn't want to repeat the text, but I wanted to use it and recontextualize it and fragment it and um, use it really as source material to go wherever. So I, it's not that it was a fixed text that I was then setting, but rather sort of intriguing little, little words and sounds that I could then use to create a new context for. Um, and I thought that the combination of, of voice and string quartet could work for that. I mean, the, the string quartet could in fact play some of the vocal music without the voice even there. They were just fascinating orchestrational possibilities. 
um, the singer really needs to be part of the quartet and it's not a soprano and string quartet in separate spaces kind of a piece. It's really about the soprano being right in that quartet. So we'll see when we can actually do this. So I, I would say that I haven't really uh, um, conquered the whole issue of text myself um, because I really chose a kind of nonsensical text and used it in a very fragmented way. So I wasn't really, you know, setting a, a, a proper poem or, you know, <laughs> something from start to finish that uh, I still have to do. Yeah, but certainly, I mean, it's really interesting that approach to taking to the text itself um, and kind of, and also finding a way around the, that essential problem, right? Yeah. Moving on from your compositional practices to your work serving on several boards for different new music series, uh, including Pittsburgh's Music on the Edge, the Eva Mikashoff Trust for New Music, June in Buffalo, and New Music Northwestern. How do you develop the variety in these projects while also featuring new and established composers, and all the while doing this, also recruiting audiences to come and watch new music in this day and age? Yeah, well, my, my work as an administrator is is, is different in for different organizations, I will say. So it could be that I'm on more of an advisory board, in which case I'm giving ideas or um, or advice or the opposite of that would be new music on the point where I'm the artistic director and I really have my hands in every aspect of that festival. With music on the edge, I'm much more on this advisory. I might organize one concert a year, but I'm not. Um, I'm not the director of it. I'm you know, your contribution to different organizations can, can vary depending on what your role is. Um, but I will say that um, I'm always thinking about who this organization is, is there for. Um, New Music on the Point is primarily an educational organization. And so the, the first priority for me is that the participants who come have um, a memorable and um, really positive learning experience um, and that they gain insight and networking possibilities and friendships and collaborations and that, that, that it helps them launch their careers. The, the second part of New Music on the Point is presenting concerts in the community. And I would say that that's something that's been more challenging for me because I don't live in Vermont. And I don't, I'm not part of that community. And so it's really hard to, uh, to create artistic experiences for a community that you don't really know that well. So maybe the, the first step is, is to know your audience and to know who it is that you're trying to reach. Um, and that affects all aspects of programming and presentation and format and location, venue. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. It, you know, and you, but but it's very important to kind of think about what that what that audience is, not necessarily the actual audience, but the audience you're trying to create. You might be a little bit. Um, you have to be forward thinking about that and say, well, who who can we bring in? Right, this is the audience that exists, but who else can we bring in and who can we reach? And so it, I would say that it's it's 
you know, it's always challenging when you're presenting contemporary music to find a way to frame it where you're, you're not alienating any of the audience and you're bringing new people in always. I think that much more can be done to um, present contemporary music in alternative spaces that feel more welcoming to different people. Um, I think that also the formatting of concerts limits families and children participating. Um, and that's something that I, uh, I'm aware of and would like myself as a, as a parent to change. Um, right. The 8 p.m. concert hall, keep yourself quiet, don't rustle your program, don't move. You know, that, that situation is one that is really not going to bring young, especially children, but young people in and families into that experience. Um, it's only for people who can behave. <laughs> you know, there, there are so many creative ways that people are reaching audiences. Of course, now there's a whole new element to that. But, but for in-person concerts, um, I think it's important to, to be just as creative with your programming and what, how the event is set up as you are with your own playing um, and understanding that, you know, short pieces might work better. You might need more than one intermission. You need to make sure that there's food. <laughs> Anything like that, it can really create um, a feeling of inclusion and um, fun. Even if it's very serious music, there's a way uh, to create an experience for new audiences that is something that, um, we who organize concerts really, really need to um, right. focus on. Yeah, it's interesting, actually. The uh, One of the things that uh, I'm interested in, in learning from you is, is how, um, how do you weave these composers and performers together in, in, in a place like InMop where you don't really necessarily know a lot of these people coming in right and so it's and it's hard to do that amount of research on that amount of people so how do you kind of string people together and make decisions about um that are actually consequential and in that people for many years on in their their futures are still working with other people that they meet right full disclosure i i also was at inmop and there are many people that i'm still in contact with who i played with that amy set me up with the first step for me is finding the right faculty. This is a space that is summer camp in Vermont on a lake, bunk bed cabins, um, mosquitoes, kayaks, and, you know, pretty shacks to practice in. And um, it's very rustic. It's very unpretentious of a space. It's very beautiful. But there's something about that space that's, takes everybody out of their comfort zone and, and puts them together in very close quarters and sort of causes people to have to work together and have to get along. We're here for two weeks all together. So there's, there's something very magical about that space that I think is different from other festivals. Um, you, you sort of have to leave you know, a lot of things behind because you're in this, um, this very rural and unforgiving um, space. 
So that's one thing that just sort of naturally happens. I think people, they, they, it might take them a day to kind of lose the New York attitude, but they do. <laughs> lose the ego. Right. They do because we're all, you know, they took a cold shower this morning and that's life, you know. Um, so I think that's part of it. And then I think, you know, I'm very um, concerned about with the faculty just to find people who, who really want to be in that space and really um, will, uh, will have the, the right kind of generosity and um, attitude about being there. And that, um, so that, that's really essential because then that trickles down to the participants when they see, sort of immediately see that this is a space in which you, none of that can happen, none of that attitude can happen. We are all here together. We all, you know, smell a little bad and are a little overtired and, but we are so excited to, to, to be just in this intense musical environment together. And, and I think that that, that uh, dominates the, the uh, atmosphere there. And because of that, because people are out of their comfort zones, they're more open to new experiences. And I think that's why all of those relationships form there that are, you know, it is such a thrill for me to see people forming ensembles and roommates and, and, you know, just continuing these, these really wonderful relationships, um, staying in touch with faculty. I've often said that the, the success of NMOP is because we have tables of 10 for meals. So talking about 2020, 2020 has been an interesting year uh, for a lot of reasons, especially with regards to social movements. Um, have you found any of the current issues within our society to be impact, particularly impactful to you, both as a composer, but also as a teacher or as a performer? Uh, I think they, ha they have to be impactful. This is not a moment in which we can choose to be involved or not involved. I think that um, our very existence as American society is dependent upon that. And certainly as artists, I think that the, um, the issues around Black Lives Matter have, uh, are something that it, we have to take responsibility for those of us who are in positions of privilege. And so for me, it, it really starts with the individual I think there's a lot of, of hard work that needs to happen on an individual level to understand how we participate in this culture and, and where our implicit biases may be, how our own education has formed us, and where there are biases and racism in, in that, the tradition, you know, the way we've been trained, particularly what music we haven't studied that we're not informed about, that's not treated um, as consequential in terms of music history. Uh, I think that's really um, something that is very important. Um, for me, you know, reading George Lewis's book, uh, Power Stronger Than Itself, about the history of the AACM, just opened my eyes so much to seeing how I, the music history that I learned was one part, and that was seen as, as music history. And yet there was um, incredible intersections and incredible influential 
uh, artists happening, also creating experimental music who, who were written into a different history. And so I think it's very important to kind of, as a teacher, um, to, to evaluate what it is we teach, what do we know, and what are we missing? Um, and so I think we all have to focus on doing that, all, especially teachers, but also as, an, as a festival organizer. I mean, I really have to think about what is the, what is the music that I'm, I'm programming and what are the ways that I can, you know, we have to, I'm, I'm constantly sort of judging, right? I'm judging applicants, I'm judging competitions, I'm, I'm on boards where I'm, I'm evaluating other people. How do I evaluate? What are, what are the important things? And what am I dismissive of? Why? And how can I be, be more aware in order to make co real consequential changes about how I evaluate other musicians and what kinds of opportunities I, in a position of power, can create power. I, I run a little music festival in Vermont, but it's still, it's, it's, a, it's a, um, a position in which I am, I am making decisions that affect other people. So there is a certain amount of power there. Um, and so I, so, you know, I think we, we cannot take anything for granted. We have to do better, really, really thinking uh, about how we can be more inclusive, create more accessibility, more opportunities, real opportunities, not one concert, but, you know, changes, major changes. But the most important thing besides doing our own self-reflection is to really listen, listen to, to musicians of color, listen to their experiences um, and, uh, and make concrete changes. I, that's really powerful and I think it's really important. That's something that we all need to take away uh, at the moment, just sort of doing some more research and finding more musicians outside of the canon that we've been so used to working with is just so powerful. And also you're going to find gems in the repertoire that, or you're going to commission someone who you perhaps never would have thought of and you're going to create all these brilliant new pieces which is just brilliant well are there any positive experiences that you want to take away from your COVID-19 isolation well right I I think that it's there's a kind of you have to prioritize time in a very different way um having two two school-aged children at home I think that if I can survive seventh grade math again uh, <laughs> experience. I think that it's you know it's been a really hard time for everybody um, and I'm trying to um, be there for my students I'm trying to be um, I feel like this experience has been a master class in adaptability uh, we are all learning how to accept uncertainty the simple decisions that we can, that we usually make without thinking are, are more challenging now. We can't control everything that's going on. And so it's important to prioritize what we can control with our own, you know, families and careers and colleagues. And um, so, yeah, I think we'll, we will be looking back on this time for a long time. Well, Thank you so much for giving us your time this morning. This has been such a wonderful 
it's just been so wonderful getting to talk with you about so many different subjects and all of your information will be down in the show notes so lovely listeners please listen to amy's music uh, if you're a performer and you're interested please download it and purchase it and learn it and we uh, we're really appreciative for you taking the time to talk to us today so yeah, thank, thank you, you so much, much. Amy. thank you i'm so excited to see where this podcast goes um it's it's a really really exciting idea and a great group of people to to bring those ideas forward so i'm so glad you're doing this and i look forward to listening to all the others thank you oh thank you so much we really appreciate that Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundweaversCast, and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Conlon Nankaro and performed by the Bugalo Williams Piano Duo. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks.